0: Well, thank you guys. My name is John Colburn. I am the Minister of Congregational Life and Outreach here at Grace, and it's an honor to be with you guys today to worship. I don't know if any of you have been watching the Olympics. I feel every time the Olympics come around, every four, this time five years, that I have this anticipation that I'm gonna spend hours and hours and hours watching the Olympics because they only come around every four years and then I find myself watching 15 or 20 minutes here and there. and I didn't even catch the, the you know, gymnastics finals that everyone was talking about. I was watching badminton, who knows? Uh, but there are a lot of strange sports in the Olympics and I'm often drawn to those. And for those of you who know, there's actually the World Games coming here to Birmingham uh, next summer. And if you've driven on 31-280, you've seen the sign and the counting down the days. And, uh, so we were talking about that with some friends a few weeks ago, and we decided it would be worthwhile to try to see, like, what are the games that are actually happening? Is there anything we want to go to see? And there are some things you might expect, like sumo and, um, uh, well, there aren't many you would expect. There's sumo. <laughs> There's also Korfball, there's life-saving, there's roller hockey, there's skydiving, there's tug-of-war, and uh, I mean, nations competing in tug-of-war, it's wild, and one that particularly caught my eye uh, was orienteering, and so I'm trying to picture, like, we're just going to take these (laughs) <laughs> dudes from Denmark and we're going to drop them somewhere in the Sipsi wilderness and they're going to have a map and they're going to have to find their way to Birmingham and that's the whole race and uh, it really is fascinating to me that it's a competition um, and I, I even remember growing up and doing some orienteering practice in Boy Scouts and you're kind of lost in the wilderness and they give you this map and a compass and you have to find your way to where you're going and I remember one time we were out with the Boy Scouts and uh, a group of people that were orienteering with me, we had forgotten our compass. There were three of us, and we had a map, but we had no way to figure out which way north was. And so, being you know 12, we just struck out in a direction, confident that at some point we would arrive at a, at a destination or a landmark. We walked, and we walked, and we walked. Eventually, we were rescued by an adult uh, after we considered whether or not to try to kill a possum with a pocket knife. Um, so it was typical Boy Scout fare. There there are times when walking through the trials and the complexities and the ambiguities of the Christian life that you can feel like you're orienteering without a compass. If you're anything like me, you know that your life should have some sense of directionality, some sense of purpose, some sense of a, a way to walk, a destination. But you may feel that you're walking aimlessly in one direction or another, and then at some point, for reasons you don't understand and people around you don't understand, you turn and you walk another way. Or maybe you're the type of personality that will just walk in a straight line for decades. (laughs) Walls and houses and trees in the way don't deter you, you just go. Well, I think that's a familiar feeling for a lot of Christians, but one of the things that I think David will show us in our psalm for today, and one of the things that we're going to look at closely is that there are regular practices in the Christian life that can supply you with a direction, that can supply you with purpose, that can show you where to walk and where you're going. One of these, and maybe the most important one for those of you who feel aimless and stuck, is called confession. Confession and the accompanied delight of grace and forgiveness are really the building blocks of the Christian life. They can help point and center our perspectives and our directions on the very heart, person, and work of Jesus. Tonight, we're going to learn a few things about confession and forgiveness, and we're going to be brought to worship by a man who knew the process all too well, King David, and he'll be our guide. So if you guys are just joining us, we've actually been in a summer sermon series in the Psalms, something that we've been doing for a few weeks now while our pastor is on sabbatical. But we have been progressing through the ways that David has taught our hearts to worship, the ways that David has shown us to reflect on God's glory, to be aware of our sin, and to worship him in response to his mercy and his forgiveness. And tonight, if you don't hear any of what I'm gonna say for the next few minutes, I pray that you'll hear this. The gift of forgiveness and the practice of confession will be the basic building blocks where your life can find direction. Those two elements, if you'll set your heart on them, if you'll set your practice on them, they will fix your eyes not on yourself but on Christ and mark a path towards Christlikeness and blessedness. And this is the path that David has found and he wants us to walk it too. So if you look with me in your worship guides, you'll have Psalm 32 there in front of you, or you're welcome to follow along with me in your Bibles. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent my bones... Surely, in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Would you pray with me? Lord, you have promised to meet us in this place and in your word, and we ask, Lord, that you would be active and present by your Holy Spirit to shape and form us according to this truth that you would cause our hearts to rejoice and delight in the great gifts that you've given us in Jesus Christ as we share this moment together. We ask all these things in the powerful name of Jesus who is capable. Amen. Speaking of orienteering and roadmaps, I don't want you guys to get lost along the way while I'm preaching, so I'll give you a little heads up to some of the directions we're going to go tonight. David's going to show us, and we're going to talk through the need, the need that all of us have for confession and forgiveness. We're going to talk a little bit about the way of confession, why it's harder than it seems, and then we're going to talk about the delight and the sheer joy that the Lord offers in his forgiveness and the way it comes with our confession. So let's talk a little bit about the need for confession. In verse 1, it says, "'Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven.'" Now, some of you may remember if you were here with us last summer when we were talking through the Beatitudes, but this word blessed in the scriptures, this word blessed, it doesn't necessarily mean what it means in English, the hashtag blessed. I'm too hashtag blessed to be stressed, right? It's not that idea. In fact, it has much more to do with this whole understanding of God's giftedness and fulfillness, a happiness that comes from the Lord's presence and his giving of himself to you. So what David's saying here is blessed, happy, fulfilled is the one whose sins are forgiven. Now, this reminds me of a story in in the book of Luke, chapter 7, where where Jesus is talking with a man named Simon, and a prostitute comes before him, and she weeps at her sin, and she washes Jesus' feet, and Simon has a problem with this. He says, you know, Jesus, you you shouldn't allow yourself to be stained by a person who's so sinned. And Jesus gives what I consider to be maybe his harshest rebuke of any person in the scriptures. He looks at Simon and he tells him that he is sorely mistaken. And he says at the end of his critique, he says, therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. Something that Jesus is trying to teach us in that is that something about what it means to be a sinner and a sinner who is forgiven is tied to the very way that we love the people around us. That actually the giftedness of God putting his love into us to love the world through us, that some of that comes from the way that he's forgiven us our sin. That our our happiness, our fulfillment, our blessedness, and our capacity to extend God's love and mercy is really drawn from our forgiveness. That his forgiveness lights the way to our holiness and and our Christ likeness. Then David says, He says, Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sin is covered. And this is dating all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, a story that you guys will be familiar with. Adam and Eve are in the garden, they've committed a great sin, and their first response when they know the Lord is coming back is to hide, to hide from the Lord, because they knew they were naked. See, the Lord promises in Adam and Eve and from there on forward to cover our exposure. I don't know if, if, if any of you are like me, but one of the most uncomfortable feelings I have is the one of being exposed. I remember one time I was sitting with some friends at an airport and I was a teenager. Again, I'm just exposing what a useless human being I was from the ages of like nine to 17. But we were sitting in an airport and we were watching people walk by and we were cracking jokes about them whether it was their appearance or whatever, we were being pretty terrible people. And we would watch them, and we, we, we talked about, and I know you've probably said it before, I love people watching, right? And the airport's full of people doing different things who are, doing, who are different than you are. And I had my shoulder tapped by one of the chaperones on the trip that we were on. We were on a high school trip. And they said, I've been watching you watch people. And that's all they said. And in that moment, suddenly the gaze, the joy that I had in kind of being able to perceive others, to see them, to judge them, to look at them, was totally flipped around, and I felt exposed and and directly kind of recognized for my own embarrassment at my behavior and my shame. To not be able to control how others perceive us is agony. It makes us feel inhuman. We all want to be covered, and we want to be covered because we know if you could see it all. If you could see every moment, every step, every word, every thought I had, then we would be ashamed. And we need, we need to be covered. and We can't cover ourselves. How much does it show us that the Lord will cover the uncovered? What a gift. Why is it that some of you guys always tell stories in such a way to make sure you are presented in the best light? I know why I do it. Why is it that you're so desperate for achievements and accolades in your workplace and want to talk about those things rather than what's going on at home or in your heart? I know why I do it. How many of you have known friends, companions for years and have done fun things with them time and time again, but you have no idea how their marriage is going? You have no idea what they're afraid of or excited about, and you know they don't know those things about you. I know why I have those relationships. Because to be exposed, or to see someone else exposed, it is against the very nature that has been put in us since the fall. We are ashamed. And we think and know other people are ashamed too. To be exposed is one of the great costs of sin. And the Lord, here in his mercy, says he will cover us. As we think the rest of the way, think about what it might be like to be covered by the Lord. What a gift. I think the sentence I've actually said most this year in pastoral meetings in friendships and times to talk with people is this, that somewhere along the way, Satan has really convinced us that we have more to lose than we have to gain from acknowledging and confessing our sin. That there is more in our perception that others carry of us, that there is more in our reputation that there is more in how we are able to control the things around us. We have more to lose by being honest and confessing our sin than we have to gain. What a triumph that the enemy has convinced us of that. I see it in you, and I see it in me. See, confession with God and confession before God and confession alongside others is a spiritual discipline that dates back to the early days of the church. You guys know we we, we have confession and assurance every single week. But I also know if you are anything like me, the practice of confessing your own sin before the Lord and in the presence of your brothers and sisters in Christ is something that you find as little time to do as possible, because it makes you feel exposed. And when I've talked to a few of you about that, and when I've thought about it for myself, one of the questions that I have thought or that I have been asked is, so if, if I'm supposed to be doing confession and it's always uncomfortable and it never seems to work, what am I supposed to be doing? Can you just tell me how to confess my sin? Am I just supposed to find someone and tell them something embarrassing and deal with the shame and embarrassment and then it'll somehow stop or get better? And in a certain sense, not at all. And in a certain sense, sort of. But I think we'll learn a few lessons here from David. So like, let's look... First, verse 2, blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. See, genuine Christian confession and repentance, you confess and repent of sin. You don't confess and repent of bad feelings. You don't confess and repent of uncomfortableness. You confess and repent of sin. Throughout the Bible, sin is a very particular category. It is rebellion against the will of God. It is transgressing against God's holy law. It is being perverse and broken and bent against the ways that God has shaped us and made us to be. It's not our guilt or our feeling bad about what we have done that teaches us that confession and repentance is the next step. It's the goodness and holiness of the word and of the Lord himself, like we talked about a few weeks ago in Psalm 19. Some feel guilty, and you have friends, or you are this person. Uh, You may feel guilty about all sorts of things that are not your fault. You may have relationships where people put weight upon you or expectations upon you that are not yours to bear or carry. You may make mistakes, and because of those mistakes, you spiral, you feel relationships falling apart, and you can do nothing but feel the weight of things that no one has asked you to do that guilt is not a sin. It is an accusation from the enemy. Not everything you feel guilty about is sin. Confession and repentance is about sin and coming to reconcile and be shaped towards holiness in the Lord. But some of you may never feel guilty at all. And maybe if you did something drastic, or graphic that costs someone you love dearly you would feel guilty, but often you find yourself walking through life unstained, unafraid, unreflective on your behavior and how it affects the people around you. I think our culture has broken some of our guilt meter. Do you feel guilty when you have a third donut, a fourth donut? Do you feel guilty when you tell a white lie to get off the phone with your mom because you've been talking for 45 minutes? Do you feel guilty when you tell that story about your friend because you know it'll be a fun conversation? Do you feel guilty when you just want a little bit more than you have, no matter how much you get? Probably not. Our guilt isn't always a great understanding of what the Bible calls to be sin, it's not always the best alarm bells. There are times the enemy wants us to believe that we should feel guilty about all these things, and they've created distance between us and the Lord, and it's not true. And there are other sins that he has made us so unbelievably comfortable with that we don't even notice when we're there there. And the difficulty with a a process like confession and repentance and being sanctified in the Lord is that if we're not doing it for sin, the ones everyone else cares about and the ones no one else cares about, we actually don't learn the patterns and the rhythms and the cart tracks that lead us to sanctification and holiness in the Lord. We don't know the path to walk when the worst things come along. We're robbing ourselves of what it means to be sanctified when we don't practice confession and repentance for the sins everyone knows about and cares about and the ones they don't. So sin is defined by holiness, not guilt. That's tip number one. Tip number two about confession. Choose repentance and reconciliation over relief. Look at verses 8 and 9. David is saying here, he's teaching like he's in a proverb. He says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. This is an experienced hand. Remember, he is a murderer and an adulterer. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle or it will not stay near you. What is this lesson of the mule? I think this probably misses a lot of us as people who aren't horse people. There may be some horse people. But one thing that I notice when I take our dog, Olive, on walks around Homewood is there are a few people who have uh, electric fences. And it always scares me because I'm walking with my dog, and there's this dog that comes barreling through a door, barking and running full speed, and they just stop at the end of the driveway right before it feels like they were about to start a fight with my dog or, or rip my face off. Why do they stop? They stop because they've run over the line before and been hurt. They've run over the line before and they've been hurt. They've run over the line before and they've been hurt. Now they fear the line. What David's saying is don't learn that way. Don't learn that way. Confession and repentance, growing in holiness and sanctification, is not about waiting for the consequences of your sin to destroy you, to feel the depth of the bit in your lips. What David is saying is choose repentance. Change behavior because of the damage that it's done to the relationships around you. Change your behavior because of the damage it's done to your relationship with the Lord. Not because you feel personal pain. I have some friends that were having some problems in their marriage years ago. And one of the things that they told me as I was talking to them a little bit about it was that this person, the the husband in this relationship, was kind of unfeeling and disconnected, and um, the wife was just threatening that it was going to be over, that this was the end of it. And as soon as he heard that, as soon as that threat was made, his behavior turned on a dime. He didn't want to be perceived that way. He didn't want to be understood that way, and he sure didn't want to lose her or his marriage. And his behavior was completely transformed. Sure enough, weeks later, as it became clear that she wasn't going to leave him, that the problems were not serious enough that he was going to have to pay the consequences. His behavior slowly and steadily changed back. Because it wasn't repentance. He would tell everyone what he had been through, he, had, he would tell them that he was unkind, he would tell them that he was unfeeling. But his behavior changed because of what he was afraid to lose or afraid to feel, not. Because he was repenting and reconciling the relationships and the damage. There are a lot of sins in our life that we have taught ourselves that we must wound ourselves to escape. But if you teach yourself that it's the consequences of sin you must fear, then confession, repentance before the Lord, they will feel unnatural. And you won't want to do them unless there are consequences on the table. What David's saying is choose repentance Don't be like the mule. Don't be like the dog with the shock collar. Long for holiness. Long for blessedness. Long for the life that the Lord has called you to long for. Repent. Reconcile. Don't look for relief. The third thing in confession, whether before the Lord or before others, take responsibility. Don't hide in circumstances. Look at what he says in verse 5 again. I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I can't tell you how many circumstances I have committed a sin, and when I have relayed that story, either to the Lord or to anyone else, it has everything to do with how I was treated by the person I sinned against. It has everything to do with how their behavior prompted it, it has everything to do with the circumstances and the temptation that obviously was just too much for me to overcome. It's so easy to hide and obscure our sin with the circumstances around it, to not feel responsible for it, to not take that responsibility. I don't care if you're responsible for 5% of the 95% of bad things that happened in a circumstance. You take that 5% to the Lord and let him deal with the other 95. There will never be a time when you can't blame your sin on someone else, but if you do it over and over and over again, you will not know the Lord. You will not know his mercy on those who sin. You will not know his quickness to forgive. You will miss this blessedness. When you confess to a brother or to the Lord or however, take responsibility. Don't hide in the circumstances. The fourth thing. And I think this is really important to my personal understanding of my life and, and, and I think many of yours. When we confess, shame is not our friend or our goal. Shame is not your friend or your goal. I can't tell you how many people have done things that they regret, that they are embarrassed of, who believe that if I can feel ashamed enough, Embarrassed enough. If I can expose myself to the people who are hurt enough that I have the proper amount of discomfort with what I've done, that I am shamed enough, that I am shunned enough, that I feel bad enough in front of all these people I've hurt, then finally we will start to make some progress. Do you see what shame's trying to promise you there? It's trying to be an atonement. It's trying to make you the promise that it can make your guilt go away. That you just need to feel bad enough about it. You just need to be embarrassed enough about it. You just need to be hurt enough about it. And if we can reach that tier, eventually the consequences of that sin will fade. Guys, it's a liar. Shame doesn't have that power to pardon your guilt. Maybe you seek shame because it connects you. I don't know how many of you grew up in homes... With parents who, when you misbehaved, would freeze you out, would give you the cold shoulder, would not interact with you until you had done the things that you were supposed to do to make it better. I know some of you well enough to know that you believe your shame and your sin will create connection. That if you are ashamed enough, that person will feel sorry about your shame and cover you that if you can make them aware of how uncomfortable you are with what you've done, they will latch on to you, that that will create connection. Guys, sin has spoiled this. Shame is not what makes people love you. Only people who love you respond to your shame in those ways. They already love you. They want you to be covered. They want you to be blessed. When you are in sin, when you are confessing, when you are trying to reconcile and you're creating shame because you think it will connect you to the people around you or to the Lord, you've been misled. Shame is not your friend or your goal. The last piece about shame that's true of me is I I grew up in a lot of sporting environments. I've talked with some men here at Grace Fellowship about this, but one of the things that was definitely true of my experience in sports is shame was held out as the way that you grow when you made a mistake in a play on the football field or or on the wrestling team, you ran. Or even worse, everyone else ran because you made a mistake. And what was the goal in that? To make you feel so embarrassed you wouldn't make the mistake again. To put the weight of other people's expectations and shame on you. And you know what happened? I grew. I didn't do those bad things anymore. And when my parents did it to me, I didn't do those bad things anymore. And you know what it taught me? It taught me that the best way to grow, the most fruitful way to become a better person is to be ashamed and embarrassed all the time about everything I was doing wrong. Brothers and sisters, if shame was our friend or our goal, would Christ have carried it to the cross to put it to death, next to sin and death and pain and sorrow and sickness? Of course not. Shame is our enemy. He doesn't have the power to transform you into the likeness of Christ or he wouldn't take it away. So if shame can't be our atonement, if it can't be our connection, and it can't be our fuel for growth, then what can? Because I know I need to be atoned. I know I need to be connected with the people I've hurt and with the Lord. I know I need to grow. Forgiveness. That's what David's trying to say. Be forgiven. It's right there in front of you. Genuine Christian confession before the Lord and before your brothers and sisters removes shame. It doesn't multiply it. Shame is our enemy and forgiveness is our ally and our blessing. Let's talk a little bit about the delight in God's forgiveness. Again, in verse five, remember, I acknowledge my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. And I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. This isn't a summary. He's not skipping a bunch of steps. He confessed his sin to the Lord, and the Lord forgave it. That's the whole story. He didn't do a bunch of secret things to earn the Lord's forgiveness. Forgiveness was immediately available. It's the instantaneous beginning of a life of repentance. When you bring your sin to the Lord, it is forgiven. Now, I know this actually caused a lot of problems for me early on in my my Christian faith because I had seen things in my family that should not, in my mind, be forgiven. I had experienced things that forgiveness had made me feel like forgiveness is not always a good thing. There have to be consequences for that moment. There have to be problems that that person has to overcome. He should be punished, or she should be punished for the things that happen. How can a good God, a good God, Look on the evil things that you and I and even worse, people who don't know him do to one another in this world and forgive it. Verse two hides our answer. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. Who the Lord counts no iniquity. When I confess my sin, God covers us by not counting it against us. Adam's and Eve's sin caused them to hide from God. Make no mistake, a good God will not and should not ignore sin, forget sin, bury sin. He must count it somewhere. Or what good would him being good be? David here calls the Lord his hiding place. Let everyone is godly Offer prayer to you at a time when he may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me, our refuge. But if God is out to be just, if God is out to put an end to sin, how can God be our hiding place from God? If sin has put us at ends with God, at odds with God, how can he be our hiding place? Put most simply, and I won't hide the lead here. It's because of Jesus' work on the cross, his death and resurrection, that we can hide in God from God. Because our sins are not counted to us, they're counted to Christ. In Colossians chapter two, Paul writes that he takes our trespasses and our sins and he nails them one by one to the cross with Christ. Romans eight will teach us that God has done what the law itself could not do by pardoning and putting to death sin in the flesh. What does that mean for you and for me? It means your self-righteousness is counted to Christ. It means your selfish ambition is Christ's on your behalf. It means your greed, your slander of others, your gluttony, your pleasure in exposing others in gossip. Your lying, your cruelty, your adultery, your lustful passions, your hatred of others, your indifference to everyone in need, your choosing prestige, honor, and pleasure over God's glory, your covetousness, your razor tongue, your lack of self-control, your delight in creating controversies and arguments, your lack of trust, your desire to hurt your partners, your spouses, your friends, all counted to Christ. He did it. Do you want to be covered? He has made a way. Such were some of you. I know that was a shotgun blast, but I hope one caught you. Nearly all of them caught me. Be free of them. Be free of them. Shed their weight. It's the way is open to you. Do not be shamed that they were once yours because they are yours no longer. He didn't just take the sins, he took the shame. Such were you once, but they are now counted to him. Breathe deep again. Breathe free. You have been covered and their ugliness lays on Christ and not on you. Think about the cross. Think about the way that Jesus died and no, No, it was not just the physical agony of the cross that made it a sufficient atonement for our sin. He was stripped naked, arms spread wide. Have you ever had your arms held down and been tickled? Yes, it's awful. It's one of the worst feelings imaginable. You feel unable to protect yourself. You're completely exposed. Christ's arms spread wide for you. He has exposed himself to shame, to ridicule, to punishment, and to pain because you and he loves you and because he wants so deeply to forgive you. Would you just come get it? Would you just come get it? Maybe you've tried a lot of this. Maybe as I've been talking tonight, this whole time there's been one thing in your brain and you know it. Maybe you've confessed and you've repented, you have people in your corner, you have brothers and sisters who know you, you've read the word, you've talked to pastors, you've talked to counselors, and there's this thorn in your side you can't get rid of because you know it so well, and you say, John, why don't I feel forgiven? I did this thing, or I'm doing this thing, why don't I feel forgiven when I come? I have a couple thoughts. I have not felt forgiven many times, and there are a few reasons I have found that I didn't feel it. Maybe they will help you. Perhaps, perhaps, you don't feel forgiven because you are just grieved or you are dealing with the consequences that the sin had left and you're confusing that for guilt. You're confusing that with the belief that you haven't been forgiven by God. Guys, one of the worst things about sin is that it is no paper tiger. On this side of God's return, sin has real consequences. It ruptures real relationships. It breaks real hearts. It creates real problems. There is agony in the wake of sin, even sin that's repented of. It hurts. You can be hurting and be forgiven. It's true. Maybe you don't feel forgiven. Maybe, perhaps. Perhaps you don't feel forgiven because you actually feel that you bear a greater guilt before someone other than God. In Psalm 51, David says something that people find pretty controversial. He says, before you, O Lord, and you only have I sinned. Now, again, he's a murderer and an adulterer. He has sinned against man a lot, but he confesses his sin before the Lord. Why? Because there is no greater law there is no greater righteousness, holiness, or aggrieved individual in any of the sins we commit than God Himself. So if you find, if you hear me tell you in just a second that your sins can be forgiven, and you come and you eat and you drink and you say, I feel the guilt still, it may be because you feel guilty to someone who isn't as high as God. Maybe you feel guilty because your ambition is suffering consequences and won't forgive you for the mistake that you made. Maybe you won't get that job. Maybe that relationship won't last because of the things you have done. Then your idol, your God, is not God who has forgiven you, but your ambition or your desire. Maybe that's the guilt that you can't get rid of. Maybe it's your reputation. I promise, guys, it won't forgive you. It can't. Whatever God you have placed above him that will not pardon your sin, know that it is a false one. It is a false one. If it will not forgive you, it can't because it isn't the God of grace and mercy that our God is. Know that he will pardon you. Turn to Jesus, not the world. Perhaps, perhaps you don't feel forgiven because you consciously or unconsciously believe it comes with a catch. Maybe you have learned, as we talked about earlier, time and time again, that to be really forgiven means that the cost will come on the back end. That at some point, he will call upon you to pay him back. That sure, sure, it sounds like he's forgiven me, but at some point, he will demand something of you. He has no need to bait and switch. He is the Lord above. He has all he ever needs. He's not a debt collector who's waiting for his moment to come pry it from your hands. You can be forgiven because he has no need of anything you could give him. He can only give free gifts because he can't take a price. He has all he needs. Everything already belongs to him. You can be set free for free. Three. That's three. Four. Perhaps, perhaps, perhaps you need to hear it from someone else. Perhaps you've come to this table time and time again with a sin that you and you alone know. And you've been trying and trying and trying to leave it at the Lord's feet. And his forgiveness seems like enough, but at times it's hard to trust. Maybe you need to hear from someone who knows, someone like David, someone like me, that whatever you walked up here and left on this table, it can really stay there. The Lord Jesus really does forgive sin. If you need someone to talk to, If you need a place to confess, I pray that at Grace Fellowship you will find brothers and sisters who are trustworthy in the Lord to hear those things and tell you the good news of the gospel. If you don't have those things, I pray you'll come to me or to any of our leadership and we will tell you, we will look at your sin as ugly as you feel it is and we will tell you this is exactly what Christ Jesus came here to forgive. And we know it well because we've been forgiven it too. Do you need to touch it or taste it? It's my fifth thing. Perhaps, perhaps, perhaps. All this just feels like words. If all this just feels like words, pretty things that pastors say in buildings just like this, I pray that you will know that we have something on this table that you can touch and you can taste. And in it is the body and blood of Jesus Christ broken for you. Grace you can touch and grace you can taste. You can confess, you can repent, and you can be forgiven. Come with me to the table. Father God, you have made yourself available to us. You have come near to us in forgiveness and mercy, and there is such joy in being covered. We ask as we eat this bread and drink this wine that you would cause those truths to sink so deeply into our hearts, that we would know the freedom of forgiveness available and you. Bless this meal and bless us that we might walk transformed by your glory. Amen.